0: Father, we thank you that you're there and that you've always been.
1: You've always existed. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created,
0: but you existed before the beginning of the creation.
1: That's just beyond our ability to grasp. So
0: how did you come into being? You've always been. That stretches us and we cannot conceive of it. We don't have the bandwidth.
1: But that's how you reveal yourself to us. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're God and we're not.
0: Pondering that just for a moment in the midst of a busy day provides um, great perspective. We got a lot on our plates We've got lists, we check stuff off and we look at our list and there's still more on it and we get tired and we get frustrated and we get fatigued and we get worn out and we get anxious and we think about not only what's on our plate for today and tomorrow, but we got stuff out there a week out, two weeks, three weeks, a couple months. We're chewing on all that
1: stuff. And sometimes it's just overwhelming. You invite us to be still and know that you are God. You invite us to cast
0: all of our care upon you because you care for us. You give to your beloved even in their
1: sleep. We have to sleep. You never have slept. You never
0: nod off, you never lose an ounce of energy because you're God.
1: We thank you that you're there. We thank you that Jesus,
0: who is God, came was born of a virgin lived a sinless life went to the cross and he who knew he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf and he paid the price for us that we could never pay and because of that we belong to you through christ we have been adopted as sons And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus has done and what he has accomplished. That right there calms our hearts and calms our spirits. We're not perfect, but Jesus is. And he transferred his righteousness into our account. To help us to take a deep breath, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally, and um, be mindful of who you are tonight. And that you're out in front of us, and you're behind us, and you're on both flanks. You're above us, and you're even underneath us, because underneath are the everlasting arms. In other words, you've got us. And we're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Tonight we're back in our study on the Ten Commandments, calling this series uh, Building on Bedrock. We'll be in Exodus 20 tonight. The topic, the premise of this semester Um, I'll, I'll restate it. I'll probably do this each time, just to get our heads in the ball game as we come in here. So here's our premise this semester. We can only overcome the hyperinflation of sin and lawlessness that surrounds us by returning to the gold standard of the Ten Commandments. Don't need to hit this too hard. Except to say that when there's hyperinflation, uh, as they've got in Venezuela, as they had in uh, Mozambique in the 90s, as they had in Hungary, uh, right after World War II, 1946 to 1948, the inflation in Venezuela is going to hit a million percent. But in Hungary, it hit a trillion percent. I have a friend that has a ministry in Haiti and he was down there three months and a box of Cheerios I think, this is close was $14 now it's $27 it's called hyperinflation we are watching the hyperinflation of evil around us it's like it doubles every day it increases exponentially you
1: see it, you sense it you're aware of it we're watching the hyperinflation of sin Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last
0: days lawlessness would increase and is it not increasing in this study which we started a couple weeks ago we've got two core principles number one The Ten Commandments are the gold standard of all ethics and law because they are based on the character of God. We've abandoned the Ten Commandments. We've forgotten the Ten Commandments. Uh, If you're over 50, you might have memorized the Ten Commandments. You can probably remember that they were in your classroom, if you're under 50. That's when they started cleaning house on the Ten Commandments. And wasn't that a brilliant exercise? You've seen and probably heard someone quote the statistics in regard to what school teachers had to deal with in the 50s. And right at the top of the list, was kids chewing gum in class it was was a social problem Uh, it was getting out of control in 1959 martin lloyd jones said to his congregation in london we're living in days of exceptional evil that was 59 this is exceptional evil and it's growing exponentially every day So the Ten Commandments are the gold standard of ethics and law because they are based on the character of Almighty God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God is good. The Lord is good and does good, Psalm 119, I think 68. There is no injustice with God. He's always just. He's good. He's just. He's sovereign. He's everywhere, he sees everything, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, but his character is absolute righteousness and holiness, the Ten Commandments are reflected of who he is, a reflection of who he is. Second principle. When any individual or nation departs from the Ten Commandments of God, they abandon the gold standard, and much evil follows. Let say that again. When any individual or nation departs from the Ten Commandments of God, they abandon the gold standard, and much evil follows. And you can track it if, I mean, if you're my age, you can look back and see when the Supreme Court started making these decisions taking the Ten Commandments out of the school, taking prayer out of the school, and, and, you know, we're familiar with this, and you say, oh, yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that. Just look at the results. There used to be a sense in this nation, even if you weren't a Christian, there was a sense that God existed, and we lived our lives, and we would give an account to him. Alan Bloom wrote a book in the 80s called The Closing of the American Mind. Brilliant Jewish professor, and he talked about the radical change that was taking place in America. He said it used to be in America, it used to be that every home had a Bible. It might have dust on it. Maybe they never opened it, but they had a Bible. Maybe they didn't go to church, but they had a Bible. Everybody had a Bible. That Bible represented the truth. It represented morality, ethics, law. So even if someone was an unbeliever, they'd teach their kids, you don't cheat on a test. You don't steal when you go to the store. It was part of the fabric of this nation. Those days are gone. William Penn, who founded the state of California <laughs> — I went to public school, I, I took history — William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania, said this. He said, "'If we are not willing to be governed by God, we shall be ruled by tyrants.'" Now, what we see going on in this country is, I mean, quite frankly, You want to analyze it biblically what we've got is we want people in high places who have had power and they want to hold on to power and they don't want to relinquish it to anybody is that not true absolutely it's true let's go to psalm one and then we'll go to psalm two Psalm one. Uh, uh, Psalm one is is the introduction to 150 psalms. It kind of encapsulates the big picture. There are two ways two ways to live. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's a picture. Of someone who is influenced by those who are against God. They're in the education system. They're in the government. They're, they're at your place of work. They're, they're, they're all over, and they're growing quickly, as we'll see in a few minutes. It's not that we don't have relationships with unbelievers, but what this is this is a this is an issue of who are your advisors, who are your counselors. Who do you value for their advice? Who do you look to? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, no matter how many doctorates they have from Ivy League schools. Two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's say a quick word about law. We'll probably have to say this each week just to, you know, because you need a refresher on this stuff. It's kind of confusing. You got law in the Old Testament and then gospel. Then are we under the law? Are we not under the law? Okay. We'll go to Exodus 20 in a minute. You got the Ten Commandments. Moses goes to Sinai. God gives him, you saw the movie, didn't you? Charlton Heston, the whole thing. God gives him the Ten Commandments written on stone. God was making a covenant with Moses, who was the leader of Israel, and he was making a covenant with the nation of Israel. Um, When we talk about, you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. It's actually Old Covenant, New Covenant. When we take communion, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which was shed. Jesus brought about a new covenant. There are three aspects to the old testament law okay and you're some of you guys are saying hey you said this last week and the week before right i'll say it again three aspects there is the civil law god gave civil laws to israel for the nation how they were to be governed it came from god that nation belonged to him those were for israel they're not for any other nation there may be laws that are similar but Those were for Israel, we do not take the civil laws and transfer them to America or any other country. Uh, There was ceremonial law. Ceremonial law was the requirements for how the priest made sacrifices and the incense and the altar and all of this. And I've said it before, if you've ever read Leviticus, um, it'll put you to sleep in about two minutes. Why is that? Because there're all these little, tight, regular not little but yeah, I mean, I mean you've you, you got infinitesimally small details on how things are to be done. Now if you were a Levitical, Levitical priest, you'd have no problem staying awake because you wanted to offer sacrifices to God and live. God is holy. Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah six, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they said one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And you know what Isaiah said? I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm gonna die. I'm in the presence of a holy God. So there was ceremonial law. The civil law and the ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled. That's why we don't sacrifice animals on Sunday morning here. Because Jesus was the great high priest, if you book, read the book of Hebrews, he was the high priest who entered the holy place once for all. And every time the, holy, uh, the high priest would go into the temple, He would have something in his arms he'd have an animal to sacrifice jesus walked in and his arms were empty because he was the sacrifice behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world okay civil law ceremonial law jesus fulfilled it you got moral law Uh, the civil and the ceremonial law were for israel the moral law is for everyone the moral law existed before the ten commandments were given in exodus 20. We could, we could look at Genesis and early parts of Exodus and see where individuals broke every one of the Ten Commandments. How could that be? They didn't have the Ten Commandments written in stone. They got it on their heart. Romans 2 says that God has written the law, his law, on the hearts of men. So a man without the Bible knows the law of God, knows the commandments of God. The moral law is still in effect and always will be always has been always will be Okay. verse 2 of Psalm 1 his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates he ponders he thinks about in other words as you go through life when you've got the law of God and the law of God is it, it's 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 not so much bureaucratic um, Nitpicking. What it is, it's a father giving his wisdom to a son on how to live well. That's what it's about. you got a boy, you got a little girl, you'll talk to them. You'll, you'll coach them. You'll sit down with them. Because you want them to have a good life, you want them to make good choices, and so you will counsel them. You'll talk to them. You'll love them. And because you love them, it's for their good. That's what the commands are for. His delight is in the law. In his law, he meditates day and night. You got stuff to do. You got a to-do list. You got work. But you've got the truth of God in your head. And as you encounter various situations throughout the day, when you've got to make a moral or ethical decision, the commandments influence you. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What do I do here? Well, his wisdom and his word will tell you. And if you don't know what to do, ask him. James 1 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach. He'll tell you, he'll show you what to do. He'll incline your heart. That's what he does. The man who does this, verse 3, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. It doesn't mean you'll be a billionaire. It means that the favor of God is on your life. You'll have what you need when you need it. He'll take care of you. He'll bless you. <laughs> He'll bless you going in and you're going out. His favor will be upon you. It doesn't mean you won't have rough stuff happen because that's how we grow. But the favor of God will be upon you. He inclines himself to those who love him and who fear his commandments and who listen and are teachable. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. The guys up in verse 1, they're not so. They don't listen to the Lord. They have no interest in the Lord. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 explains what's going on right now in this uh, hyperinflation of evil and lawlessness. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising of anything? The kings of the earth take their stand. The EU takes its stand. Putin takes his stand. North Korea takes its stand. The Democrats take their stand, the Republicans, senators, people in places of power take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together. Watch this. This is what the majority of them do. It's not all of them because God always has his Daniels in there somewhere, always. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their chains apart and cast their cords away from us. They do not want to submit to the truth of God in any way, shape, or form. They have power. They want to keep power. They want to be in control. That's their God. And we see that, and it upsets us, and it bothers us. And verse 4 says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He's, he, he's got it. He's got it. It's okay. Jesus, king is, Jesus is king of king and lord of lords. He's got a plan for the ages. He's got a plan for the nations. His plan is more exact than an atomic clock. He raises up nations. He sets them down. He raises up rulers. He sets them down. You have the rise and fall of great nations. And Jesus rules and reigns over all of it. And when it looks like for God's people things are falling apart, they're actually falling together because of the providence of God. I love verse 10. Now therefore, O kings who are in rebellion, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. He's playing hardball. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. God is a God of justice, and God is a God of wrath. But he sent Jesus, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's go to Exodus 20. So, really, I I mean, Psalm 1 and 2, it's what we see going around us right now. It's nuts. I'm not going to read all of the Ten Commandments, but I want to read the first three in Exodus 20. You have the preamble in Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me, no other God in competition with me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The idea there is zealous. If you love your wife, you're zealous for her and you're jealous for her. There's a a wrong kind of jealousy, but there's a healthy kind of jealousy is there not sure there is i visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments this can kind of mess us up here but you got to notice there are two groups those who hate me and those who love me and i'm not going to spend much time on this but we tend to emulate what we see in homes, and sins are often repeated in families that don't know Christ. But the gospel, the good news, can break through, and those who have had generations of not knowing Christ can receive Christ, and they put a new link in the family chain. Your generations are just, they're, they're, it's a huge chain of links. You're one generation, your kids are the next. Grandkids, etc., and then you got him going back. When a man comes to Christ, there's a new link in the change in the chain, and old things pass away and all things become new. And God shows his goodness to a thousand generations. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. First three commandments okay so over the summer um i got a lot of reading done i read a book that deeply disturbed me uh i could only read it i could only read so much and i had to put it down and get away from it but then i had to come back to it because it's so um i had not heard of john s dickerson he's a young pastor late 30s he was an investigative reporter in fact he starts out the book by telling he he was having uh, dinner with uh, Charles Gibson former anchor of ABC News at a beautiful hotel in New York because he had been chosen to receive an award as the um, top young investigative reporter in all of media Gibson funded it, Tom Brokaw, some others, and he was in town. And he starts off by telling a story, and he's having dinner with Gibson, and Gibson says, I guess the award dinner was the next night, and Gibson says, so you're leaving investigative reporting, and you're going to become a pastor? He says, yeah. And Gibson is flummoxed. Why would you do that? <laughs> I'll tell you why, because God's called him. He's got unique gifts. I think this young guy has been raised up for such a time as this. He, has, he is as discerning as anyone I've ever read about what's going on right now. Uh, it is um, a hope of nations standing strong in a post-truth, post-Christian world, which is where we are. Post, not post-toasties, but post. And if you're young, you don't even know what that means. That used to be a cereal that Sky King would, he was was all for that. So I was for it. I'm dating myself, aren't I? Um, Post means after. We're in an after-truth, after-Christian world right now. I'm going to give you a little shot on this. uh, It's a tough book to read because it's so real and honest. This guy, remember, investigative reporter. He's got his facts. He knows the scriptures. He's a seminary graduate. He's got discernment. The men of Issachar, uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 12, 32, the men of uh, Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. This guy is a man of Issachar. He's a millennial pastor. He says the next 30 years are going to be really, really tough, and more than likely he'll be alive because he's only 38 or 39 years old. He said, when did it become normal and routine for us to daily expect news of another terror attack, shooting, or act of evil? In the static noise of these cycling conflicts, we sense that we are losing something foundational, an entire way of life, think Ten Commandments. We sense that the world our children and grandchildren inherit may be unrecognizable from the life of peace, stability, freedom, and prosperity that we once knew in America and the West. The great cataclysm of this era is not merely a catastrophe of disconnected events, but fully the collapse of a culture, a society, and a civilization. In moments of perspective, we suspect we're not living through typical shifts in a stable society. No, it seems that the tectonic plates are rupturing deep beneath our civilization. This book explains definitively, simply, and accurately just what is happening in our world, our nation, and our society. This book enables you to see where these events are leading and why they are happening. This book combines the research of a decorated journalist with the Bible teaching and guidance of a pastor and best-selling author. As the nations shake in fear... We will gain sure footing by rooting ourselves in Scripture and in timeless truth. So many of our neighbors are confused and increasingly in a panic.
1: And then he says, we're going to be looking at uh,
0: what's happening, why it's happening, where it will lead. He tells the story of, uh, he pastored for a while in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he went to... um, The Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco. Uh, The Folsom Street Fair is a festival that includes naked adults in leather bondage gear, sex acts, masturbation in public. Uh, They emphasize bondage, whips change, sexual acts take place in public and the police are ordered to stand by. One news report documents a father who brought his two-year-old daughter to the sex festival dressed in leather bondage gear. When the dad was asked by a reporter if it was wrong to bring his daughter to such an event, the dad answered, every parent has to decide for themselves what is right for them. And I respect that. And we decided that this is right for our children. Exposing a child to acts of sex would rightly be prosecuted as sexual abuse in many states, but at this Folsom Street Fair in California, instead it's celebrated. I mention this disturbing story here in the introduction for one purpose. When you read the term post-truth in this book, you may be tempted to brush it off as an academic term that doesn't really matter. But a dad dressing his little girl in bondage gear and bringing her to witness enacted sexual abuse is one tangible example of where Post-truth thinking actually leads to culture, its people, and its youth. When a culture has no true standard, then every family is free to define its own morality. I was reading this week of 13-year-old girls that are having mastectomies because of sex change. And they've been told certain things that are not true. 13-year-old girls I couldn't even finish the article. As we'll see in the pages of this book, the post-truth shift of American culture is underway and this shift will bring with it tangible and difficult consequences for our neighbors, our children, and our grandchildren. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> this is tough stuff, but you know what? We're the men, we're the dads, the fathers, the grandfathers, we can't have our heads in the sand. We, not, we need to know what's going on. And we need a sure word from the Lord on how to lead and live our lives in these uh, times of uh, the hyperinflation of evil and lawlessness. He says every year the experts at Oxford Dictionaries pick a word for the year. Recently they chose post-truth as the single word that summarizes American and European culture now. They noted, and this is huge, that our society now defines truth by feelings rather than by facts. That's the shift. Western society was once founded on truth, but it has now moved beyond it. With its post-truth declaration, the team at Oxford planted a flag, a mile marker between two eras in world history. And it is this shift from one era of history to another that underlies the global and social unrest we now see. In the United States and the West, the previous era was defined by the constant pursuit of truth, think Ten Commandments. That era was an uneven but upward climb towards truth. It lasted more than a 1,000 years from the founding of Oxford University and the other early Christian universities until very recently, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Ivy League schools. Christian-based Western contributions The following is a fact, not an opinion. I had a young man tell me a couple of weeks ago that wherever Christianity goes, the well-being of people decline, and there's no advancement. I, I said, I want to say this to you nicely, but I want to say it. You could not be more wrong. That is not factual, and that is not true. It is absolutely the reverse. And he didn't believe me. Christian-based Western contributions, uh, Christian-based, Bible-based, Ten Commandments-based, Jesus-based, have doubled human life expectancy, created widespread literacy, eradicated open slavery, which had been a global norm previously, and birthed the most prosperous era of human history thanks to Western democracy, modern medicine, the scientific revolution, and mechanizations that have lifted humanity from darkness to light watch this in our lifetime we have witnessed more than likely the peak of this western christian civilization it is a vast and complex network network and western civilization will not collapse overnight but this much is clear western society is now willfully descending back down the mountain of truth moving willfully away from the very pursuit that proclaimed that produced its wealth and liberty in the first place we're retreating from it what lies ahead, we cannot say with certainty, but if human nature plays out as it has in previous eras, then my generation, the millennial generation, will find itself surprised by the brutality and consequences of a society severed from the truth.
1: My prayer in these pages is to minister
0: to your head and to your heart and to your mind, and to your soul. And he does a good job of this, because this, this is tough news. But he grounds all of this in the sovereignty of God and the plan of God. This guy's solid. Together, we will fortify our Christian foundations and our God-honoring response of faith in Christ. In a chaotic world, we'll remind ourselves that we are not randomly placed in fact, the Creator has strategically placed us here so that we can serve our role in the greatest story of justice, goodness, and triumph over evil. On this journey, we will gain a higher understanding of the world events that continue shocking and shaking our neighbors. We can understand the great story. We can see our role within this great story. And then, even if the mountain should fall into the sea, even if the nations are in an uproar, we will not be shaken. That's Psalm 46. So let's turn to Psalm 46. What a great psalm this is. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It could be translated, as the New American Standard has it in the margin, God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. That's where we are. Therefore we will not fear. Why? God's my refuge and strength. We will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. We will not fear. Why? Because there is a God who is in charge. Huh. You can read down through the rest. Verse 6, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. Verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. We're living in days of lawlessness. Down the road, there will be a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, that will unite the world into one system, in opposition to God. And then Jesus is coming back, and Jesus is gonna take care of it, and he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus will rule and reign forever. And all this nonsense is gonna be over. And if you know Christ, you're gonna be there. I'm telling you, that's good stuff. <laughs> but this is his momentary light affliction. In light of this present darkness, we must, uh, as Christian men, recommit, recommit to three truths. I wanna give you three truths tonight. I gave you two core principles but let me give you three core truths and they all revolve around the first three commandments. The first one is this and I'll, I'll give you all three and then we'll go back and jump into them. The first one is this, we must serve God with utter loyalty, we must serve God with utter loyalty what is the first commandment in Exodus 20 verse 3 you shall have no other gods beside me that means we're absolutely loyal second truth we must serve God by restraining our imaginations that one may seem a little off I'll explain it in a minute. We must serve God by restraining our imaginations. That applies because of the second commandment where God says, you shall not make any idols for yourself. The third truth is we must serve God by honoring his name. Now, let's go back to the first one. We must serve God with utter loyalty, utter loyalty.
1: And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength.
0: As I said recently, might have been here, it doesn't say you shall love the Lord your God with 90%, 80%. 60%. You want to be all in. In these days, you want to be all in. You don't want to be half hearted. You don't want to be missing around. You don't want to be a church guy. You want Jesus in your heart guy. You want Bible in your mind guy. Not to pass a quiz or play trivial pursuit and win, but to apply it to your life so that he can navigate you and you can walk in wisdom. Absolute loyalty to the Lord God Almighty. I'll quote again from Packer in his little excellent book called Keeping the Ten Commandments. He has a chapter, Who Comes First? The fundamental commandment, first in importance as well as in order and basic to every other, is You shall have no other gods before me. True religion starts with accepting this as one's rule of life. <clears throat> The next section is called loyalty. Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. God calls covetousness idolatry in Colossians 3, 5, because what you covet, what you want that you don't have, houses, possessions, ornaments, money, status, success, or whatever, is had as a God in this sense. Those things can all be gods because they can take the place of God. We pointed out that there are two ways you know who your God is. Um, Really, who do you think about? Who do you love, think, love? I mean, really, or what do you love and think about? That's how you know who your God is. Secondly, who do you trust or what do you trust? That's who your God is. To have your maker and savior as your God in preference to any other object of devotion means that you live for him as his person in faithful and loyal obedience. The attitude of devoted loyalty to God expressed in worship and service according to his word. You know, the lawyer asked him, and I already quoted the verse, the lawyer asked Jesus in Matthew 22, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And what did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and your mind, that's first. You love the Lord God. And as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol making factory. We're always having to fight off other gods because there's always something that gets our attention and gets our interest. And you know what's interesting is when Moses was up on the Mount Sinai and the Lord gives him the 10 commandments, he comes down and he's, there, there are the people and there's, all, there's, there's anarchy and chaos and there's all this celebration and all this deviation going on, what, what happened? While he was up there getting the Commandments from God, and they had just seen God bring him out of Egypt, they'd seen God do 10 miracles in Egypt, he opened the Red Sea, that was an 11th miracle, they'd seen the power of God, Moses up there, where is he, how come he's not back? What do they do? They make an idol. They make a calf out of gold. And I read that and think, how could they have done that? I do it all the time. And you do too. We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love, as the old hymn says. So we got to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life, You got to watch yourself. You got to keep your eye on yourself. Then you've got the second commandment and the principle that we had. We must serve God by restraining our imaginations. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I wouldn't have thought of this if I hadn't read Packer. He has a chapter called Imagination. This is brilliant. This section is called Imagining God. How should we form thoughts of God? Not only can we not imagine him adequately, since he is at every point greater than we can grasp, we dare not trust anything our imagination suggests about him, for the built-in habit of fallen sinful minds is to scale God down. Sin began as a response to the temptation, you will be like God. Eat it. You'll be like God. And the effect of our wanting to be on God's level is that we bring him down to ours. This is unrealistic, not to say irreverent, but it is what we do when imagination is in the saddle. That's fascinating to me. We imagine certain things to be true about God because we want those things to be true about God. Hence the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or, or of anything. This forbids not worshiping many gods, that's the first commandment, but in imagining the true God as like yourself or something lower. God's real attack is on mental images of which metal images are more truly the consequence than the cause. When Israelites worshiped God under the form of a golden bull calf, they were using their imagination to conceive him in terms of power without purity, and this was their basic sin. And if imagination leads our thoughts about God, we too shall go astray. No statement starting, this is how I like to think of God should ever be trusted. And imagine God will always be quite imaginary and unreal. That's brilliant. God is who he says he is. God is who he has revealed himself to be. That's who he is. I read another book over the summer. Excellent if you've got kids. Kids. Kids, you know, if you're still paying for them. Kids. John Stone Street, who uh, replaced Chuck Colson on Breakpoint and Brett Kunkel, a practical guide to culture. This is good stuff. It's it's excellent, it's so practical, they break it down. I, I, I marked it, I read it, I took notes on it. Talking about our culture, they say the modern pantheon of idols in our culture includes the following. The first one is the idol of self. The first of the Ten Commandments is, now watch this, you shall have no other gods before me. Today, we have no other gods before me. We're selfish. We're into self-realization, self-understanding, self-actualization,
1: self-discovery. We're just into self. Just look deep inside yourself.
0: You're confused, you're hurting, you're not sure what to do. Just look deep inside yourself. You don't want to do that. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Looking deep inside yourself is like going scuba diving in a septic tank. (laughs) It is. It's all about you. It's just all about you. You don't care about anybody else. You may act like it, you may have the people smarts, you can't let that out, but you know, it's all about you until Jesus gets a hold of you and he sits on the throne of your heart. And you become a servant, and he's Lord, and he's master, and he's God. There's this sin, uh, the idol of state. Not state college, government. The idol of state. The Apostle Paul wrote, my God will supply every need. Today, we increasingly look to the state to supply our needs and even many of our wants. Don't have to say anything more about that. You see it. You get it. You understand it. Next idol, the idol of sex. This very good gift of God, a means of expressing love and marital oneness, is for many life's highest pursuit and in in and of itself. One of the things behind this whole confirmation stuff, and I said this the other night, One of the things is they want to know, is this guy going to in any way, shape, or form impose God and his commandments upon us? We want to be able to have as much sex as we can have and slaughter those babies and not think a thing about it. The new president of Planned Parenthood, this woman, The new one. She says, and I'm paraphrasing, but I am doing this, I'm taking this job, because I am a mother. That's, uh, That's evil. That's wicked. That's wicked. So here's the deal. If you took your girlfriend
1: or your wife or Forrester, come on, you gotta get an abortion. Was that evil? Yeah. Did Jesus die for that sin? Yeah. If you repent and turn to him, he'll do it. He'll remove
0: that sin from you as far as the East is from the West. Your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the power of the blood of Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the gospel. Another idol in our culture is science, or they say more accurately, scientist have replaced the word of God as the source of absolute truth. Rather than pointing us to the God who made the world, science allows us to remake the world and even ourselves as we see fit. The next idol is the idol of stuff. Blaise Pascal famously wrote of a God-shaped void we all have that only God can fill. Today, the constant barrage of commercials, marketing slogans proclaim that our void is stuff-shaped. Yet the more we fill our lives with stuff, the less we're satisfied. I saw something the other day I, I read it. Don't know if it's true. Don't know if it's fake news. I don't know. But what I read was that Amazon's working on technology by, you know, your history and your and, and, you know, they know all about us. <clears throat> They'll deliver what you desire before you order it. You see, that's unthinkable. What we have right now is unthinkable. Some of you guys are still trying to learn how to program that fax machine. (laughs) There's a new book out on Christian universalism Last week, I talked about the idol. The, another idol, a contemporary idol in evangelical Christianity is the idol of no hell. No hell. You'd be surprised how predominant this is among especially young believers and academics, theologians. No hell. The flip side of that would be everyone is saved. That's universalism. Michael McClymond, written the new uh, 1,300-page history and critique of universalism. They interviewed him. fascinating article. Um, Everyone's going to be saved. There's no hell. It's cool. God's cool. God would not do that. Even though Jesus talked about hell twice as much as he talked about heaven. By the way, we read Psalm 1. It said, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Oh, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. God wouldn't do that. Well, you know what you've done? You've just made an idol. That's what you've done. Well, God wouldn't do that. You've just constructed your own God. You've just brought him down. Because you think there's no way he could judge, and he always, judge. he always judges appropriately. There are levels of judgment in hell as there are levels of judgment in heaven. They ask him, uh, in your book, you refer to universalism as the opiate of the theologians. What do you mean by that? See, universalism is the flip side of no hell. He says, uh, my phrase, of course, is the adaptation of the saying of Karl Marx, to the effect that religion is the opiate of the masses though his actual phrasing was a little different. The point I wish to make is that universalism is the way that many religiously believing people and contemporary academic theologians especially, watch this, would like for the world to be. They're constructing their own God. The world as we might wish it to be is one in which God's grace extends to all persons without exception, and all persons freely and positively respond to it. Some contemporary universalists suggest that the harsh traditional doctrines of dying judgment and hell are keeping people out of the church. If only we would replace these doctrines with the good news of Jesus, people would respond. Yet he goes on and says, you know, but with a little bit of reflection on the basis of scripture, there's a problem with this reasoning, because perfect love did appear once in history. His name was Jesus, and what happened to him? Perfect love was nailed to the tree, because they didn't want him. Jesus said, if the world hates me, you know that it hates, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, John 15, 18. He says, my book does not attempt an analysis of the Western cultural situation, but I would say that we are living in a society characterized by make-believe. We're making it up. We don't like what the Scripture says, we, 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 we come up with something else. And as I quoted Lloyd-Jones last week, basically, we become our own God. Because we're not under the authority of God, we're not under the authority of Scripture. Third principle, third truth, we must serve God by honoring his name. We must serve God by honoring his name. Third commandment states, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. There's a lot to this, but just a couple of thoughts. The Lord wants us to use his name. He wants us to use his name. Is it Acts 4, 12? There is no other name under heaven given to men by which they may be saved than the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. He wants us to use his name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. His name is the name above all names. He wants us to use His name.
1: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The names of God express who He is, the names of God express His character.
0: Philip Reichen has
1: written this. It's good. In the third commandment, he refers
0: to himself more indirectly. Rather than saying, you shall not take my name in vain, he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He does this to call attention to his special covenant name, Yahweh, or Lord. This was a name that God revealed long before the Israelites even reached Mount Sinai. Back at the burning bush, remember Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years? Back at the burning bush, Moses asked for God's name, and because of his great love for his people, God gave it to him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He is Yahweh. Reichen goes on and says, the name that God revealed was his personal name, Yahweh, Literally, God's name means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It speaks of God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, and his supreme sovereignty. As the events of Exodus unfolded, it also testified to his saving power. The Israelites learned from their deliverance that the God who revealed his name to Moses is a God who saves. John 8, I think it's 856. Jesus is taking on the religious leaders, as he often did. He was always throwing curb oil. Th- Those guys didn't know what to do with him. They hated him. He has this dialogue going on. You get to 856, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There you go. It's Father, it's Son, and it's Holy Spirit. No other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Why? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and I'm the life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord wants us to use his name. I was a little boy, little guy, probably two. We lived in Bakersfield, California. My dad was working at an oil refinery. And I remember him telling me the story. And I asked him about it before he died several times to make sure I had it right. Up by Bakersfield College, you go north, and there are these bluffs, and then it drops down, I don't know, a couple, 300 feet. And in the middle of those bluffs, nothing down there, was this big uh, Richfield oil, oil refinery. And I remember driving down that little two-lane road. And you could drop off, and it, the whole thing, there weren't guardrails on every stretch. Some of it was just a drop. <clears throat> I can be, remember as a little boy being real nervous, you know, watching my dad drive that. <clears throat> so my dad had worked the night graveyard shift. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's coming up that road, curvy, two-lane, tight, narrow. <clears throat> He falls asleep. He wakes up. The cliff is here. There's a car that stupidly was passing another car, and he's got nowhere to go. And he yelled out,
1: Jesus! And there was no collision. And he said, Steve, all I can tell you is that's what's happened. Psalm 68, I think it's verse 20. To the Lord
0: belongs, escapes from death. Is it possible to He wants us to use his name. Is it possible to use his name, to to misuse his name? Last week, September 11th, I was watching the History Channel for about 20 minutes. And they had all this footage that they had gotten from people on the streets. Uh, And, you know, some of it was real rough, and it it was kind of fascinating, though. And they had a time, you know, the time would come up, and, you know, the first tower fell, and then it's pretty pretty riveting the second tower goes down and you, you've seen the pictures and then this this billowing cloud of smoke starts talking you know, taking over everybody and here's this this guy's filming some guys filming these people and these people are running down the street and they're saying oh my god oh my god help me oh my god help me jesus help me oh my god jesus now an hour before they were saying, oh, my God. And they didn't mean it. Yo, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Some of them don't even believe, people don't even believe in God. Oh, my God, he's not your God. We're flippant. We throw it around. We should be careful of how we speak of God. We give respect. Children are taught to respect older people, to respect their grandparents. They're not your peers. They're not your friends in middle school. You address them a certain way because of who they are. same thing is true of the Lord. We don't cheapen his name. We we don't do that with him. There are other ways that we can take God's name in vain. There are other ways that we can abuse God's name. In this article on universalism that I read, they talk about a theologian named Karl Barth. Now, if you look him up, he was the most preeminent theologian of the 20th century. Bart did some good things, but he did some not, not so good things. Uh, a lot of biographies have been written about him. He came up with a new orthodoxy, you know, he's he's popular. He took on some liberals, but he wasn't really all in with the Scripture. He didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but he's been respected. But he's confusing. Um, A biography was written on him a number of years ago, and it came out that— Carl Bart had a decade-long affair with his administrative assistant. He was married and had children. He actually moved her, she was his mistress, into the house and lived with her and had sexual relations with her. This was unknown, recently came out, was substantiated in this biography. An article was written in Christianity Today, one writer says, under the heading Steadfast in Faith and Steadfast in Adultery, it's difficult to reconcile the utter strangeness of a man who lived in awe of a holy God while subjecting his wife and children to the indignity and the inappropriateness of a
1: live-in mistress. But this was part of the mystery of Karl Barth. What's interesting, uh, he had what's called a dialectical
0: approach to theology, which emphasized the contradiction between two truths in order to gain insight into the deeper truths of God. For example, Jesus is both God and man. Watch what Bart did with the word of God. Bart's stretch of reason was that he and Charlotte had no choice but to live in this dialectical tension between obeying God's command about marital fidelity and what felt right to them. That's a crock. Oh, by the way, this article on uh, Christian universalism, Christian universalism, you know who really got it going
1: and really lit the fire? Carl Burt. He had a view of, of salvation.
0: You know, the Bible says, repent and believe, and you shall be saved. What he said was, you're already in. Everybody's in. Clearly, that's not taught in Scripture. Now, Nobody has said this, I haven't read this, but it seems to me he was taking the name of the Lord God in vain and using it for, its own, for his own purposes. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher and theologian, Bart lived in Switzerland. His ministry, Schaeffer's ministry was in Switzerland. He was presenting a paper at an Evangelical Congress about Bart's theology. Doesn't believe in the inerrancy in scripture, believes in universalism, Out of courtesy, sent it to Bart. Bart sent it back, was very upset. And one of the things he said to Chafer is I don't want to talk with you. I will not interact with you because I do not deal with people who are not open minded. (laughs) In other words, you're
1: too anchored in this book, you're too anchored in these commandments. He wanted it both ways.
0: So he made an idol. That's his legacy. Let's pray. Father, we're all sinners. We all make idols. But as in our day and time, the world is hyper-inflating
1: in lawlessness and wickedness. You have
0: called us to be followers of Jesus and you've called us to be holy as you are holy. The 10 commandments, Lord, we can't keep them. We desire to. But even if we don't physically commit adultery, you brought it down to our heart. Even if we don't murder someone, if we want to, if we wish we could, we've broken the commandment. You see everything about us. We cannot keep the law. Thank you that you did keep it for us. Thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins, and thank you that as we walk with you and we fight off idolatry and sin, 1 John 1, 9 rings true. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous, but help us to grow in our convictions. Help us to draw some lines. Help us to restrain ourselves when there's anarchy everywhere else. Help us to say no. Help us to turn our eyes away and not look. Help us, Lord Jesus. And we can't do it by ourselves, that's why you've put us with other believers. He who walks with wise men will be wise.